Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Heritage, legacy, spirit. Those are some of the themes behind a new production that is soon to make its world premiere right here at the Nashville Symphony. The opera is called The Jonah People, a legacy of struggle and triumph. It is the creation of composer and jazz trumpeter Hannibal Lacombe, who has played with some of the greatest legends of jazz. Folks like Gil Evans, Elvin Jones, and the Thad Jones and Mel Lewis Orchestra. His compositions have been known to transcend the definition of classical music. Later this hour, we'll meet Hannibal Lacombe and take you behind the scenes at the Skirmerhorn, where the symphony is gearing up for next week's debut. But first... Tensions are high at the state capitol, to say the least. After last Monday's deadly shooting at the Covenant School in Green Hills, protests ensued, including one in the gallery during the House floor session last Thursday. It was at that day that Democratic representatives Gloria Johnson of Knoxville, Justin Pearson of Memphis, and Justin Jones of Nashville joined the protesters by standing up and chanting with them as they called for gun reform. Now, all three face possible expulsion for their actions. Republican House Speaker Cameron Sexton falsely equated their actions to the January 6th insurrection at the nation's capital. Joining me now to discuss are two of those representatives, Gloria Johnson and Justin J. Pearson. Thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate you raising this issue. I really appreciate you both being here. Now, first, I want to go back to last Thursday. Talk us through your thought process going into the session that day. Representative Johnson. Well, um, you know, going into that day, I came in early to speak with, we knew there were going to be a lot of protesters, a lot of young people, a lot of parents who were very concerned. Uh, So I came in early so I could talk with them as they came in and spend a lot of time with parents, with their toddlers, their teenagers, um, just listening to the moms as they came to this uh, to this protest that that Thursday morning, they dropped off their kids at school, many of them, and they just cried as they were talking to me about how scared they are now with leaving their kids at school. And they wanted the legislators to hear what they had to say. And so we were thinking that we must welcome them. We must honor them. We have a portion of our morning that is dedicated to welcoming and honoring. And we didn't have the normal welcoming and the honoring that morning. We were not able to address them at that time. And we wanted to let them know that we heard them, we saw them, they cared about the issues. And and I, I will let my colleague, uh, Representative Pearson, speak to the fact that when he tried to speak, he was gaveled down. Tell us about that, Representative Pearson. Yes, as Representative Johnson mentioned, there's a time where we're supposed to be able to speak. And that day, we would have definitely recognized the those who lost their lives at the Covenant School. And we would have recognized the thousands of protesters who showed up, demanded that we do something about gun reform and make sure that we have just, sensible gun legislation. Uh, but instead of that, uh, time after time, we were told uh, or we were not given that opportunity. And each time that I was speaking for the first several times, I would say, we need to do something about gun reform. 
uh, and the speaker would gavel and then say, you're out of order. And he said that several times until he said, uh, if you say that again, you'll be censured on the on the floor. Uh, and it got so egregious that even when we would step out to go and talk with some of the parents, or really it was a lot of children and teenagers, uh, the speaker and the Republican leadership turned off our voting ability um, uh, during the session, which has never happened before. Uh, and so there were just continuous egregious acts to silence us and to silence really the people who were asking that we do something about gun reform and gun uh, legislation uh, that's being passed in the legislature. Now, a lot of people showed up at the Capitol on that day to protest um, for gun reform, including, like you said, Representative Pearson, a lot of children and students. Representative Johnson, have you ever seen protests of this scale before? Well, you know, I've I've seen large scale protests, but, you know, something to come up so quickly and with that type of response that should to be telling you that you need to listen to this. You know, I taught for 27 years. I was in uh, Central High School in Knox County when we had a school shooting. It happened that morning in the cafeteria. And I just remember sitting in my classroom and seeing hundreds of kids running out the doors, running down to my room, screaming and crying. It took a few minutes for them to be able to articulate to me what was happening because they were so traumatized. And I will never forget the terror, the fear on their faces as they came into my room and the events of that day as we finished out the day sort of in shock um, as parents came to, to get their children. Uh, we lost one of our students that day and it was I taught special ed. It was a special ed student, not my student, but I certainly... Uh, knew him. And so if, especially if you've had that experience, you've been close to that experience, you know how traumatizing this is for children and, and, and the, all the community. And for us to do nothing but thoughts and prayers, when families are hurting so much and so fearful for the safety of their children, it's devastating. Now, it's cruel. The the Speaker of the House, Republican Cameron Sexton, he said that your actions were a breach of decorum and, as I mentioned, compared it to the January 6th insurrection. Representative Pearson, what do you have to say about that comparison? Yeah, it's a terrible comparison, and it's wrong. Uh, the reality is children and teenagers and parents and uh, even representatives who peacefully protest and use their First Amendment rights to elevate the issues of gun reform and gun control are not insurrectionists. In uh, uh, the, the state capitol, we did not have people scaling the walls. We did not, unlike January 6th, we did not have people breaking windows of the House, unlike January 6th. We didn't have people dying, including law enforcement officers working to protect representatives uh, who died uh, because of the actions of individuals on January 6th. That was a terrible comparison to call Tennesseans who are asking that we do something about gun control, who are demanding that we have necessary gun reform legislation to keep not only our schools, but our community safe. Uh, to call them insurrectionists was, was is just a terrible accusation, and it is definitionally wrong, and it is morally wrong. But the real problem is, the real problem is, uh, we we spoke up, uh, myself, Representative Johnson, Representative Jones, because the speaker and the leadership were being silent on this very important issue. Well, and by using our First Amendment rights, we were we're told that we need to be expelled. But it's because of the issue that we're fighting against, which is gun 
uh, gun control uh, is because of the issues uh, and the people like the NRA that we're up against that they're fighting to expel us. Now, have either of you since spoken with Sexton? I have not. No, I have not since this expulsion. I did speak with him uh, beforehand and with the leader, Lambert, and uh, caucus chairman, uh, Faison. Before they moved to set up the process of expelling you? You you spoke with them? Yes. What was that I I spoke with. What was that conversation like? Um, Each of them were relatively brief. Um, uh, That being said, uh, I I believe uh, the speaker had uh, a couple of people on the call with him. uh, And, you know, I shared, look, while we may have broken a house decorum rule, I admitted to that being a case, we did not know in any way, uh, shape or form that this could lead to our possible expulsion. And the reality is the last two people who were expelled from the state house uh, uh, in recent memory, one had committed sexual assault 22 times and the other committed the crime of bribery as an elected official. Uh, us breaking a house rule, a house decorum rule, uh, in order that we might uh, fight against gun violence in our state, whether that's in East Tennessee, Middle Tennessee or West Tennessee, uh, is not a crime. Uh, and it being treated as such is wrong. Uh, and in those conversations, they did not tell us uh, or tell me that what we had done could lead to possible expulsion. Uh, but it does seem by us exercising our First Amendment rights and us making sure the people in our community's First Amendment rights are actually being paid attention to and they're being listened to, um, that the penalty for that and going against the NRA and going against gun lobbyists and going against people who don't really care enough about gun violence to pass just legislation uh, means that we ought to get expelled from the House. Now. So because of your and actions, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Re- Representative Johnson. Yeah, I, I want to make the point since they have created, you know, they, they brought these resolutions to expel us. Um, it seems like they might be trying uh, to make some deals at this point. Uh, I have no interest in making any sort of a deal. They brought these resolutions. Uh, they can bring them to the floor or they can uh, den- refuse to run them. But I want to speak to this issue on the House floor, Uh, I say to them, I'm not making any deals. I'm happy to speak in front of the body and in front of every Tennessean tomorrow. And, you know, I'm ready to go. Let's go. If that's what you want to do, I'm ready to do that. Now, because of your actions, you two and Representative Justin Jones have been removed from your committee assignments. And I understand that even your access to the building has been restricted. Representative Johnson, how has that affected you? Well, it's it's been a horrible situation for me because Thursday when this all happened, it was uh, when the you know the day that we had that incident on the floor. Um, I w- went out to dinner, came back kind of late. It was around eight thirty, I think, when I arrived back. I'm not really sure what time it was, but I I had no access to the garage, and so my scooter was inside the garage. And um, it was I was getting ready. I was driving back that night to Knoxville. It's a, a two and a half, three hour drive. I needed to put my scooter in my car because I needed it for an event. A lot of times I leave it here, but I had an event specifically that was long distance that I was going to need my scooter for. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to walk around. We finally found someone to let us to get us in the garage. But by that time, I was so tired and I had to get on the road. I wasn't I didn't what didn't wasn't able to lift my scooter and put it in the car to take it back with me. I just drove home without it. Mm. And then um, same situation. I don't come in on Monday mornings. I come in on Sunday night because Monday traffic is so bad. 
I get here Sunday night. I can't get into the garage. I did eventually find someone to get me in the garage. Last night, uh, when I came from Knoxville, I stopped at the drugstore and picked up my prescriptions. My heart medication was in my car last night, and I had to get to it. Um, couldn't get in because my badge doesn't work. The garage opener doesn't work. Uh, then I found a security person, but they wouldn't let me in. The only way I was able to get in the garage to get to my medicine in my car was somebody who happened to be leaving the garage. So I came in behind them. Mm. Now, Republican lawmakers have filed for your expulsion, and that goes to a vote tomorrow. What do you plan to say to your colleagues ahead of that vote? Representative Johnson? Um, I really, you know, they will hear me tomorrow. I, I want it to be heard in front of, you know, on on the camera so folks at home can watch it, so people in the lobby can hear it. And I have been speaking as up as much and trying to tell the story as much as I can, but this was not an insurrection. We've had skirmishes on the floor that have taken this long to resolve, and there were never any results or never any consequences for those actions. And so to, to make this some horrible thing that we've done by using our First Amendment rights to raise the issue of gun violence, which so many in this state are crying for us to do right now. I felt in my heart, and I know that my colleagues did too, we had to speak to them and let them know that we saw them and that we supported them and we were gonna fight for gun sense legislation. And I, those folks know that. And they're taking, they're taking advantage of this situation. They think they found a way to expel three of the most vocal folks in the legislature when it comes to speaking for the people. I've got to, I've got to ask you both, what does this say about the state of our democracy in Tennessee? Representative Pearson. Yeah, we are losing our democracy in Tennessee. Uh, it, this, this is another example of the, the erosion of democracy um, because we spoke up for gun reform, because we spoke up for uh, people uh, and children uh, who will never become state legislators, uh, who, who will never graduate from high school, never get engaged, never be able to see uh, uh, or protest for their own lives because they've been killed by gun violence. And this is this is this is deeply uh, personal uh, for me as well, having lost a classmate myself, Larry Thorne, to gun violence earlier this year. The reality is, uh, uh, we are not uh, experiencing democracy and our voices being silenced and to have a partisan vote, the first partisan vote uh, to expel House members uh, is uh, and should frighten every Tennessean and it should frighten Americans uh, because these are not the ideals uh, that the forebears of this country believed in. And these are not the, the, the beliefs that we uh, within the institution and those outside uh, uh, believe are fair or just. And tomorrow, I think, uh, as always, I believe God will uh, give me and give us the words uh, in order that we can continue to speak justice. We deserve sensible gun reform in the state of Tennessee to protect kids and communities. And solutions that offer more guns, more weaponized people are not real solutions. Uh, and we're going to continue to advocate and fight for them. I mean, to that note, you know, this is all happening 
while we're all still dealing with the tragedy of last Monday's shooting and Republicans, right. they have deferred most gun legislation until next year. Do you mm -hmm. see any path forward on this issue? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was one of the requests we had, Representative Johnson, Representative Jones, and myself, was that all gun, gun legislation be uh, taking off of uh, the agenda for this session uh, in its entirety. Uh, the, the other things that we need to see uh, is, is not just the removal of those very bad pieces of legislation, such as lowering the age to carry a weapon uh, to 18 um, and, and things like that, but we need to see real legislation, such as red flag laws, um, uh, put into place and put into practice while people are still in session. Session is still going on for at least another month uh, and work to create just legislation, not just not pass bad legislation until next year is something that we, we should see as well. That is Representative Justin J. Pearson of Memphis. He was joined by Representative Gloria Johnson of Knoxville. I want to thank you both for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank we'll you. keep fighting and we'll see y'all tomorrow. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with the legendary composer, Hannibal Lacombe, about his new production at the Nashville Symphony. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The Jonah People, the, a legacy of struggle and triumph, is a new opera by composer and musician Hannibal Lacombe. It will make its world premiere next week at the Skirmerhorn Symphony Theater. It is a massive multimedia production and a new kind of event for our city's symphony house. So what is the vision behind this new show? How did it come to be? Joining me now to answer those questions is the man himself, Hannibal Lacombe. Hannibal, thank you so much for being here. Welcome thank to you. This Is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you very much. So be before we talk about the Jonah people, I want to talk to you about your musical background for a minute. Who introduced you to music? My, my grandfather and grandmother in the village I was raised in, picking cotton in the fields of Elgin, Texas. Mm. That was my first musical experience. But um, prior to that, growing up on the farm, listening to the wind, the rivers, the, the uh, trees, wind in the trees. So nature is the source of it, but the human source was hearing my, my people sing blues and sing in the cotton fields. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that in the 60s, you moved to New York City, where you played with a lot of jazz. Oh, artists, yeah. <laughs> particularly the jazz instrumentalist, Rashawn Roland Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> and for people who are unfamiliar, Rashawn Roland Kirk was a, a, a wonderful musician. He could play the clarinet, the saxophone, and at the, at the same time. What was that experience like working with such a, a wonderful, venerable artist like that? It, it was mystical. Uh, a number of times we would go to a restaurant and depending on the attitude of the server, he would all, always say, oh, everybody know you were born on May 5th. Hmm. He, he, never mi he never missed it. It was wow. always accurate. It, it, 
we we got a lot of free meals <laughs> on, on, on that talent, on that gift. You, you also play with legends like Pharrell Sanders and Roy Haynes, and their uh-huh. their music is out of this world. How did that How did that experience influence your creative direction when you got to started creating your own music? Well, from from playing with Roy Haynes, who probably is the one of the only people living who played at Minton's Playhouse. From playing with him, I, I learned orchestrations from the to- the tones of his drums, how he, he would tone his drums, his rhythms, uh, the sound of the cymbals. Um, there's a part in the, in the opera where uh, when the lady is crawling on her belly trying to get to the man who bought her to save her children. And uh, Roy had a technique where he would scratch the... Uh, the snare under the drum go shh, like so I use that technique in the in the uh, in this opera. Okay, now you have a long history of lar and a large portfolio of works commissioned by symphonies all around the country. This one is being described as your magnum opus. Why is that? I think it's a culmination of of my life experiences, and uh, it will be presented in a way that my other works have not been presented. Uh, lighting designer, clothing designer, uh, actors, actresses, sets, extraordinary set. The set is of, a, is of the womb of a slave ship. Mm-hmm. Everything takes place in the womb of this slave ship because for my mind, um, those and the descendants of those who came from the slave ship are who and what who I call the Jonah people. Those are the Charlie Parkers, uh, the James Baldwin's, uh, Ma Rainey's, Louis Armstrong's. Mm-hmm. We came from that experience. So the set designer, young, brilliant set designer, designed the whole set as a slave ship sails these huge sails. It's breathtaking. That alone would be worth coming to see. Now, there's a saying you're known for. Come as you are, leave transformed. Tell me more about why you say that. Well, that's my prayer. That's my prayer. That's why I do this work, to uh, show us parts of ourselves we never, we never knew, especially the parts of ourselves that, that, ha- that has to do with our divinity, That's heavy. It's beautiful. I think a lot of humans, I think, I think the human phenom- phenomenon is quite extraordinary, and I, I, I hate to see so much of it wasted because people don't come to realize just how divine life is and, and that, that, that the potential of life can be. Now, Nashville was very ready to receive the honor of premiering this remarkable show. My next guest is one of the people who helped make that happen. (laughs) I'd like to welcome Alan Valentine, the CEO of the Nashville Symphony, to the show. You get a round of applause, Alan. (laughs) (laughs) The first guest ever on This Is Nashville to receive a round of applause (laughs) as they're being issued. Thank you for being here, sir. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, Well, tell me about this collaboration and how it came together between the symphony and Hannibal. Well, it was really interesting. You know, um, Hannibal was in town uh, actually back in 2018 doing a performance of his 
crucifixion, resurrection. And uh, they did that at the chapel at uh, Fisk. And uh, the night before, or a couple of nights before, he did a, a talk at Fisk. And I attended and uh, hooked up with Hannibal. We'd met each other. We, we, we had dinner, I don't know if you remember, in the art museum at, yeah. uh, in Detroit one night. Remember yeah. that? And, we, uh, and so I came and saw him. And we, and we were doing a rehearsal for a project where we had... Uh, the orchestra down in a pit, and a, you know, just, it was a it was an experiment actually that particular night. And I brought Hannibal over to the hall and introduced him to Giancarlo Guerrero, our music director. And anyway, the next morning we decided we would all have breakfast together. And Hannibal sat down, and he started telling us about this idea he had for this work called the Jonah People. And he was so unbelievably passionate. I mean, you just heard what he had to say in this very short part of this interview mm -hmm. so far and it was so captivating and the story so compelling that Giancarlo and I literally looked at each other across the table and without even having to speak it to each other we looked at each other and the message was we have to do this mm. right you yeah we were both thinking the same thing and that began the journey and uh, and it was just it's I think the single most significant work that we have ever put on our stage, that we have ever mounted, that we have ever undertaken, and it is the most important work that we have ever undertaken. Well, tell me why you feel that way. Well, you know, we, we started a journey um, that was really focused on how do we make the Nashville Symphony as an institution more reflective and responsive of this community, mm -hmm. re responsive to the community and reflective of the community. And we started that journey long before all the, you know, the pandemic and all these latest things. But uh, that was really inspired by some work that the Metro Arts Commission was doing here in Nashville. And um, I participated in the Real Cadre, the Racial Equity and Arts Leadership Program. And it really opened my eyes to things mm. uh, that I just flat didn't understand, mm. you know. And that, that um, really started a journey of exploration. And, you know, as an arts institution, we're about creating great art. And great art begins with passion and a good idea and a compelling story. And Hannibal delivered all of that and we, just at that breakfast meeting. It was overwhelming. That was and one hell of a breakfast. It was, it. wasn't it? <laughs> and, I gotta go eat there. <laughs> and, and I'm telling you, we, it 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 has it, it is absolutely going to be one of the most spectacular things we have ever done. And I would urge anybody with an earshot to get out and come and see it because you won't re, you won't regret coming to see it. In fact, you'll be you'll I, I believe you will leave transformed. Mm -hmm. But I also believe that if you don't attend. You're going to really regret it because everybody you know is going to be telling you how you missed it. The kids talk about FOMO these days. We'll see. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lekalona. We're talking this hour with visionary composer Hannibal Lacombe and Alan Valentine about the new opera, The Jonah People, a legacy of struggle and triumph. Treat us your questions at This Is Nashville. Now, Alan, you know, Hannibal, Alan shared why he wanted to bring the Jonah people here. But why did you choose Nashville as the place to premiere this show? My great-grandmother was a member of the Trail of Tears, which, of course, was uh, instigated by Andrew Jackson. Uh, she's my spirit guide, and 
gave me the name Lacumbe in a series of dreams. So this place is very important for me for many reasons. That that one included also the 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 westernmost southern, southern part of it uh, joins to Mississippi, uh, where the great Fannie Lou Hamer uh, did work that impacted my life and Medgar Evers too. I wrote a string quartet called Fannie Lou Hamer in her honor. I wrote an orchestral work called God, Mississippi and a Man Called Evers in, in honor of Medgar Evers' life. So, so this is the place. There, there, there could not be a more perfect place geographically and spiritually than Nashville, Tennessee, where Dr. King came to learn how to protest. Mm how to be free, how to make our, help our people be free. It's very special. Alan, talk, talk to me about what makes the Nashville Symphony special and how, you know, in the community and the core members of the people who support it. Well, you know, one of the things that I think really makes the Nashville Symphony special is that we have had a commitment for a long time now, goes goes way back to Kenneth Skirmerhorn's tenure, to... Um, contemporary American music, music by contemporary American composers. And it has built a reputation for us around the globe. It's earned us Grammy awards and Grammy nominations. And that commitment, um, you know, really fits in with what Nashville is all about as, as Music City. You know, if you think about Nashville as a city where lots of uniquely American music is created, recorded, performed and promoted to the world, uh, to have the symphony following in that same vein in our own genre, first of all, is really important. Um, it's valued by this community. Creativity, after all, an arts institution sort of has a choice. You either become a museum that's looking backwards all the time and looking, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, in the rearview mirror, or you become an institution that's always looking forward to the future mm -hmm. and thinking about creativity and innovation. And it's critical. And I think... Nashville is a unique community because it values that highly. And as an institution, you know, we've had a lo long history of putting together projects that are bold and daring. But this may be the biggest, and it's not maybe, this is the biggest project, single biggest project we've ever undertaken. And it's, again, one of the most important projects we've ever, ever undertaken. This is the largest project in the history of the Nashville Symphony. Yes. So how can this experience in this project, how can it create new generations of fans for the Nashville Well, Center. I believe that this this project and this experience is it's already created lots of new friends for the orchestra. It's really um, I, I think going to be a moment where lots of other parts of our community that don't realize that the Nashville Symphony truly belongs to all of them mm. um, are going to realize that it does. You know, it's going to be a kind of an eye-opening experience, I think, for a lot of people in our community. And our commitment is unwavering. I mean, we, we are, uh, you know, my, my, I have a personal, passionate belief that if symphony orchestras today don't transform themselves and become institutions that truly serve their communities in a meaningful way, and by that, by communities, I mean the entire community, we're going to be relegated to the scrap heap of history.
Well, that's definitely not in the plans for the Nashville exactly. Symphony. Alan Valentine is the CEO at the Nashville Symphony, which will be presenting the world premiere of The Jonah People, A Legacy of Struggle and Triumph on April 13th. Alan, thank you so much for thank being you. with us. Now, composer and musician Hannibal Lacombe will stick with us through the break, but when we come back, we'll take you behind the scenes of The Jonah People and meet one of the principal cast members of the show. If you have a question for Cannibal, Hannibal Lacombe, please tweet us at This Is Nashville. Hannibal, will you do the honor, do us the honor of playing us out real quick? Sure will. Awesome. Kaleole Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about the world premiere of Hannibal Lacombe's The Jonah People. It opens next week at the Skirmerhorn Symphony Hall, which is being transformed in ways not seen before by local audiences. Our lead producer for today's show, LaTanya Turner, dropped in on the pre-production work and takes us behind the scenes as designers prepare for the first rehearsals later this week. The Skirmerhorn Symphony Center is really noisy this week, but not with the sound of music. Power tools, hydraulics, sewing machines. These are the sounds of staging for The Jonah People, a legacy of struggle and triumph. It's an opera by world-renowned composer and jazz musician Hannibal Lacombe. And in just a few days, Nashville will host its world premiere. The massive multimedia production requires 50-plus builders, technicians, stagehands, projectionists, and costumers to transform the symphony hall into an immersive experience that includes a huge slave ship. The set and scenic design was created by Sean Motley. Very challenging timeline. Usually I have over a year to design a set. I had two months. Yeah. I'm going to be tweaking things on set on this one. <laughs> you seem very relaxed. Sean sits in the center of the huge concert hall with his computer open to digital drawings of the set while he observes and sometimes quietly walks into the workspace to give guidance. We've just been collaborating between myself, Miko, who's a projection designer, Kelly, who's a lighting designer, um, just trying to stay on the same page, you know. Uh, you know, managing expectations uh, and also making sure we get the best product for Hannibal to put on stage. I think we're getting close to that. Uh, so, it's, yeah, we'll have to pull out all the stands and it goes... When I first read the libretto, I was like, I was, it, was, it was moving and I was like, wow. I was like, you know, I was terrified. I was like, how do I put this on stage? But I also was very happy about finally a story that hasn't been told is being told. And the way he's doing with music and movement. 
That movement is dictating a lot of the design elements, including what the performers will wear. Costume designer Christelle Matu says audiences should not have preconceived ideas. I'm not trying to be exactly period accurate. It's more uh, to capture that era through symbolism. Even for the African characters, it's extracting the essence that I'm trying to ground the story in that are clear enough to the audience that the pain and the violence to be projected in a, in a way that could be seen maybe shocking, but at the same time true. Christelle says she's designing for a cast of 56 performers. Eventually, there will be about 100 costumes and about the same number of shoes, accessories, and headwear. Usually for an opera, you'll be brought on much, much earlier. That created a time constraint, and I really wanted a team who could work fast, who could communicate, and who could also be patient, <laughs> but also know when to nudge me towards being, you know, a little bit more expeditious. You know the saying, it takes a village. She put together a team of 30 professional designers and stitchers, including several from Middle Tennessee. My name is Bonnie Green, and I am uh, an assistant costume designer at the um, Jonah People. So I'm Nashville born and raised. So I am um, one of the assistant costume designers. So I'm helping uh, Christelle um, sort of in whatever she needs to help get this on the road, but also like making sure that, you know, the dream becomes the reality. There's things from across multiple different time periods. So we start in like the 1790s, and then we go to the 1940s, then we go to the 1950s, and it's... Um, we're also in Africa. We're in all these places that, where do they come from? What can we build? Bonnie has costumed a lot of shows over the years, but this one, it's really special to her. Nashville hasn't really seen something like this. This is the symphony's first time producing an opera. It's pretty big, you know? We get tours, but we don't get our own. This show is going to be impactful. It's made to be impactful. So I think that everybody will walk away with a gut feeling, with like, you know, with a lot of things to think about and a lot of things to process. The production is also a sort of spiritual process for some of the designers who are themselves descended from enslaved Africans, including those whose ancestors did not land in America. Christelle is from Guadeloupe. This is what attracted me to the stories because uh, he, we ended up in different parts of the world because we were abducted and sent to different countries, the Caribbean being one of them. I don't have the same uh, American experience, but I've been in this country for long enough that I've experienced what it is to have that awareness uh, of the differences and understanding, as the title say, you know, the struggle. But I think we all share, no matter where we are in the world, the same struggle as a community of black people whose ancestors were kidnapped and abducted and shipped to a completely different land. Now I'd like to introduce one of the voices that will be heard in the performance. Soprano Karen Slack is a principal cast member of The Jonah People, A Legacy of Struggle and Triumph, and she joins with me now. Mm. Karen. 
Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you for allowing me to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Really happy to have you with us. Now, le- legendary composer and creator of the Jonah people, Hannibal Lacombe, is still with us. Hannibal, again, thank you so much for being here. Karen, over the years, you've worked with Hannibal on three projects. So you know his process very intimately. <laughs> <laughs> Take me back to the first time you two were working together. What happened in your initial meeting? Oh wow, <laughs> it's so it's so fascinating because Hannibal is one. He's like one in a billion. Mm. So um, Hannibal got my name um, from recommendation from I think of several musicians in Philadelphia because he was doing his piece Healing Tones mm. during his residency with the orchestra, and he actually called me on the phone and you know, talked to me, asked me a couple questions and then asked me to sing my favorite hymn. Hmm. Like, what audition do you ever go to where a composer asks you, all, you know, questions about where you're from? We talked about my family. We talked hmm. about um, my, nothing about my career, hmm. you know? And so I sang my, my favorite hymn, Greatest Life Faithfulness. And hmm. then he came a couple months later and we had lunch. We think we had like a three hour lunch. Yeah. Wow. And we just, we didn't talk about music. We just talked about life, living experiences. My, you know, my experience growing up in Philadelphia. And then he wrote this beautiful piece from a uh, role for me in Healing Tones. And like I said, one in a billion that that I've never, ever had that experience with any other composer. It seems like people have these transformative experiences with Hannibal, not only in listening to his music, but also when you're eating food and lunch and breakfast and things. <laughs> I wonder what dinner's like. I know. That's next time. Next time. But Hannibal's unique in the way, like, he'll text you a poem and mm. then he'll call you and read it to you and say, I was thinking about you. I had this. I have this thing for you. He'll text you. I have this thing for you. Okay. <laughs> How do you say no? Mm. You you move your schedule to make it to make it possible to be a part of anything that Hannibal's creating. Now, how is that different from the other composers you've worked with throughout your career? Um, well, out of the living composers, I mean, of course, everything goes through an opera company and you know a, an artistic uh, administrator who puts your name forward, or a composer who barely you know has you in mind for something. Most times, you have to audition. You know, interesting. Um, my other my other, I say my other um, spirit in this in this um, new world of music is also Terrence Blanchard. I've worked with Terrence quite a bit mm-hmm. in his opera. I'm just like Hannibal in a way. I have to say the jazz men, they get me versus the classical guys. I always have to work much harder on the classical world. But when the jazz men, the gentlemen are writing things for me, it's more so about me, who I am as a human. They mm-hmm. write from the inside out mm-hmm. versus on listening to five recordings of me singing and then writing something they write from my spirit the spirit that they get from me and I have to say like they are in a class by themselves versus the other way where you know you have to audition and sing three auditions or whatever or somebody who doesn't know anything about you gets to choose what projects you do so it's not only a transformative experience for the audience, but for you as the performer as well. Absolutely. And the level of commitment you put into the piece, I'm going to mm. do more for someone <laughs> mm. who is invested in me in a very different way. So I'm going to show up and show out more than I normally do, you know, in a way. And I understand that as an artist, particularly in the kind of career where you are mostly with predominantly white institutions, mostly predominantly white casts, I know how important it is for us to bring the, a level of excellence to these particular projects so they the, the institutions continue to support them. Mm-hmm. Hannibal, 
tell us real quick, what did you see in Karen as a perform when you decided to write that part for her? I saw my mother. And I, I saw all that she struggled to do to take care of my brother and I. I saw my grandmother in the cotton field singing to stay alive. I saw, I saw all of that in her. And I felt that in her. So it was easy to do. Mm. It was an easy decision to. It had already been made. I just realized it had been made. And so, and along with her extraordinary talent, uh, uh, her, 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 her academic genius for sound, the sound is basic, you know. That's something, that's something she inherited, you know. But as well, her technical skills. Uh, it's been said often that my music's not easy to sing or to learn or to play. And, uh, so that allows me to t t tailor. There's no, there's no end to what I can imagine her doing. Hmm. How does that resonate with you? <sighs> Deeply. Again, it's about the commitment. It is about the um, to see all that in me. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it, it's very moving. Um, and his, his his pieces are complex, but I, I'm changed um, from the very first time I sang Hannibal, and it and it, 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 it fights you back now. Let's not be okay. <laughs> <laughs> in the process, you know. But again, I, I he also makes room and makes space for you to bring your interpretation. It is not do this, do this, do that. Yes, of course, all the markings are there, but it also leaves interpretation to, and also to bring our, our blackness mm. Mm. to these spaces, these hollowed halls, as I call them, the concert hall, you know, yeah. that has for so long dismissed, ignored, whatever you'd like to call them, you know, um, but it is. So I bring my classical technique and my, and my culture, my blackness, to to these pieces and you know you're following in footsteps of or continuing the legacy let's say of Leontine Price mm -hmm. and Marian Anderson and what have absolutely so, so tell me a little bit more about this part that you're playing in the mm -hmm. opera in the Jonah people <laughs> three roles <laughs> I three. have to say yes mm -hmm. um like many characters many um of us in the piece are doing three roles um Bookman's mother Asase I'm sorry mm -hmm. um um uh, Susie, Susie, sorry, and my Fatima. grandmother. Yes, Susie mm -hmm. and Fatima. Mm. I say, <laughs> Hannibal writes beautiful roles for women, powerful, um, transformative. Um, the the heartbeat and the soul of a community. You know, so I can be specific about each role, but every woman <laughs> mm -hmm. is important to the storytelling, to the narrative, and has her own place versus supporting a man, which oftentimes is what we do in opera. Mm -hmm. You know, women play secondary roles. Very, very, very infrequently do we get our own stories told. But um, Hannibal always makes space for women beautifully in his work. Now, Hannibal, you're conveying the African-American experience in the Jonah people. It's a lot of history. There's a lot of performers involved. How do you go about fitting all of that into one performance? Well, if I, I first try and make sure I have the right phone number. Mm. And in the case of uh, 
gathering singers that I'd have had no prior experience with. I was lucky to have uh, John, the uh, assistant director. Um, we went over, we spoke about the work, and he got the right sense of what it was and chose the dancers, the, uh, the uh, child soprano, and musicians from the Nashville uh, area. So I'm very fortunate to have people who, who are devoted to the vision, and that allows them to select the people that I've never met before. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the roles that's, that Sister Karen sings, it's, uh, it's a duplication of what I experienced in the cotton field as a five-year-old boy when the shrouds of heat would cover the, bo the bodies of the people in the field picking around one o'clock, it would get that way. And uh, I saw the music give them the power to endure the intensity of the sun. So I saw then and I realized the power of music. So Sister Karen says, I am the power to make things right. I am the power of the day and of the night. I am the power of the moon and the sea. I am the power that will always be. And to hear her sing it, mm -hmm. I'm gonna, it's a good thing I'm not gonna be in the audience because I wouldn't have to take, I wouldn't take it. I, I mean, my wig would jump up too high. I'd, I'd start <laughs> hollering. You know, I, like in the field, they say, yes, yes Lord, thank you. Yes, You know, Lord. I'd jump him up. Well, I want to thank you yeah. for being with us. The Jonah People, A Legacy of Struggle and Triumph, will run from April 13th through the 16th at the Nashville Symphony. It was created by visionary composer Hannibal Lacombe and features soprano Karen Slack, both of whom were gracious enough to talk with us today. Congratulations. Thank you so much for being here. Thank we, you, brother. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Latanya Turner, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Amir Blade. Special thanks to Blaze Ganey and Julia Ritchie. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and let us what let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.